0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: this is little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture with me neil denny this week max porter on crows ted hughes and ted hughes's crow in his first book grief is the thing with feathers Max Porter works in publishing. His first book, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, has been shortlisted for this year's Goldsmith Prize and longlisted for this year's Guardian First Book Award. Max, we're going to be talking about Grief is the Thing with Feathers today, so welcome to Little Atom.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: This book, I've seen it described a lot of ways and, and inside the cover it's described by the publisher's Faber as part novella, part polyphonic fable, part essay on grief. It also has the look and feel of a, of a book of poetry as well how would you categorise
2: it I'm pretty happy with Polyphonic Fable when they came up up with that I said (laughs) yeah I like that I mean, the point for me was that I, I resisted thinking at any stage about the form. You know, I shut out all those sorts of thoughts and just wrote the thing exactly as I wanted to write it. And then only when I'd finished it and thought, God, this, is this unpublishable or should I send it to someone or what, did I start to think of it as a thing that could be labelled. And really, I still think, even though it's out in the world, in bookshop, it's resisted categorized you know, algorithmic thinking in, in quite a refreshing way. I'm really pleased. People seem to be putting it Actually, it's quite worked out quite nicely because people just put it on the front table <laughs> because they don't want to put it in picture. <laughs> nowhere else would it to go? Yeah. So, and, it, and also because they've made it look so nice, it's meant that people have just said, "We don't know what this is, so try it." You know, it's got a nice because I was a bookseller for a long time. I feel I've perhaps inadvertently written something for the hand sellers you know Mm. for the people that trust their punters and the punter comes in and says give me the thing you know I like and they just reach for this and say I'll not tell you anything about it just get on in it and see what you make of it
1: and it is a very beautiful got a beautiful cover it feels really nice and it looks great on the page as well
2: they've done a lovely job that was a really nice thing because they the typesetter at Faber a woman called Kate did that and she was very intuitive She just said, can I go for it? And then sometimes it's a slight homage to that Faber classic 70s, you know, in the cover as well, the Bertold walter typography and everything. And other times she just really listened to the voices and set it as she believed it ought to be set. And I was really thrilled. And each voice it's set in the three voices has its own different typesetting rules. Mm -hmm. So there's no consistency across the whole, but there is consistency within each section, Mm -hmm. which I love. That comes from a real appreciation of of poetic settings, which are lovely things in themselves.
1: And, of course, one of the people that hangs quite heavily over the book, although we'll we'll debate the extent of that as we go on, but to start with, Ted Hughes. Mm. I want to talk, first of all, before we get into Grief is the Thing with Feathers, about Mm. Ted Hughes's Crow, Mm. So I don't think, you know, it's not necessary to have read to enjoy this book, but it obviously adds something to it. So let's have a little bit of an appreciation, first of all, for what Ted Hughes' Crow was.
2: Yeah, I'm pleased you say that you don't need to read it to get into the book. I really, that felt very strongly about that. Mm -hmm. The idea was that someone that's never read Crow would not be excluded from it. But if you have read Crow or you're a big Hughes fan there's a lot of little treats (laughs) smuggled in there, in jokes and little kind of critical uh, nods to some of the reception of Crow and some of the scholarship around Crow. Mm -hmm. And I've been really pleased that a few huge scholars, who are interesting people in themselves, actually, but they get in touch and they say, oh, how did you, that's hardcore. Mm -hmm. You know, little things I've put in there. Uh, But so, yeah, so talk about Crow. I actually haven't read it for a while because I didn't want to read it while I was writing this Mm because I really, really didn't want my Crow to have uses Crow's voice and I haven't read it since because I, uh, something maybe I'm a bit superstitious maybe I just haven't felt compelled to go back into it but my memory of the time in my life when I was obsessing over Crow is that it is still 32 years later a shockingly good book mm-hmm. a horrible horrible masterpiece and a really a really radical ugly anti-poem and, and so for someone that was also such an accomplished Uh, you know, lyric poet and and, and such a great letter writer and such a great scholar of Shakespeare and ecology and myth and everything, to have had the circumstances and the personal bravery to have written something so unfashionable (laughs) and and, and terrible, you know, some of it is terrible, Uh, is still a remarkable thing. And I know, you know, I I, I resist the kind of hagiography about Ted Hughes and and the kind of uh, the cult of little anecdotes like this, but I do love this, that when in the letters he says when he finished Crow. He was on the train somewhere and he'd had this terrible year and he'd figured some of it out in the writing of Crow and it was making a terrible mess of his life. And there's a moment where he's on the train and he puts the last full stop on the end of the, what he considered to be the last poem he was going to write and he got knocked on the side of the head, punched on the side of the head on the train and there was no one else in the carriage. So it was just this kind of ghostly <laughs> blow on the head. And I'm a real believer in that, you know. And that's one of my starting points, is that you can have a relationship, an obsessional relationship with a text that can physically smack you around the head. You know, I've I've spoken to people that've had comparable experiences listening to music mm. or looking at art, you know, the profound experience of art.
1: Widening that out, there's sort of mythology around Hughes. I mean actually there's a, a joke in the book that we'll get on to the characters, but the dad, one of the i I'll say three main characters. We'll discuss that later. <laughs> um, he's a tattoo scholar. He's in the process of writing a book and his publishers of Have clearly said this is not supposed to be about you know Ted and Sylvia and all that, but of course it's sort of impossible, isn't it? I think now at at this distance, Crow was obviously written when he was grieving. You know, it was written after you know, well, not just Sylvia Plath's death, but he's sort of surrounded by death as he's writing that. That's obviously going to filter down whenever we now look back on on that work.
2: Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's especially productive to try and separate his Mm -hmm. biography from that book. And I suppose, I suppose that that's why for me it's the it's i mean it's not my favorite ted hughes book but it is the middle of ted hughes for me it's the kind of black throbbing center of mm-hmm. all ted hughes achieved and inevitably because he made such a hash of things and because of the type of man he was and the circumstances of the people he loved and the way their lives went it's unavoidable to see it as this kind of um not so much a self-portrait but a kind of um a map of all his concerns because mm-hmm. when it's beautiful crow is really it's, it's especially beautiful and when it's horrible it's it's almost fetid like it's almost a, a gives off a stink of nastiness you know at, at times and then i think for someone that went on to become such an institutionalized figure it is really an achievement i don't think, i can't think of anyone today that would do something as brave as crow you know and, and and the comparisons i always think of the one i've been sort of saying to people is i think of it as a bit like Francis Bacon's Screaming Popes that there is this symbolic and and, you know this this icon that he couldn't get out of his system and I think Crowe really got into Ted Hughes's system in a way that was impossible for him to process and it came back again and again and again and it's in all his kids poems and it's in the Iron Giant it is a sort of kernel for me of what he was what he was concerned with across his whole life.
1: As we go on, I don't want the you know I don't want the discussion to be too focused on on Ted Hughes because mm. we'll, we'll sort of discuss you depart from that. So we should all we should bring in really the title, you yeah. know, which obviously is taken from Emily Dickinson, and perhaps we could talk about some other influences that get into this book as well. I mean Emily Dickinson, obviously, could it really be more different to Ted Hughes?
2: I don't. My obsession with them both has been quite similar, but no, they. they I don't know that they. I think they are quite similar. He was certainly obsessed with Dickinson, mm-hmm. and actually. Once I decided on Crow and went back and looked at some things I'd read about Hughes before, I realised how that forms... You know, I'm obsessed with the number three in this book, but that very uneasy and very generative and and tragic triangle between Plath's creativity, Hughes's role as a poet and an editor and a a husband, and and both of their shared love of Dickinson. And Hughes writes this thing in the introduction to the Faber-Pocket Dickinson about the number three and about this third nameless black thing, which we would now... Diagnosed as as epilepsy or manic mm-hmm. depression or whatever it is we call it, but for Hughes, it's like the name of it isn't important. The point is you had her talent and her faith, and then this swarm, this black thing, and, and then I got into Helen Vendler, which I would thoroughly recommend for a Dickinson fan, because she does that uh, literary criticism, which is just you just trust it. She's not making any wild sort of speculative judgments. She's just very very careful and insightful. But she talks about how the thing in Dickinson if you go through there are there are at least seven things that the thing is but ultimately the thing becomes this sort of device you know and that is that's very crow like mm-hmm. crow is all over the thing and so this is a bit cheap i suppose it's a bit of a cheap shot to just to replace to take the dickinson but you know from the epigraph here you see that yeah. E- everything I wanted to say in this book can more or less be summed up by that.
1: And the epigraph has been... Vandalised. ...dexcrated. Yeah. yeah,
2: because the idea for me is... Well, firstly, that's the, that's the poem I love most in the whole world, that poem. And it was one that Hughes liked to think as well. But You should probably um, say which poem it is. Well, the lines are that love is all there is, is all we know of love. It is enough. The freight should be proportioned to the groove... And in this book, it says that crow is all there is, is all we know of crow. It is enough. The crow should be proportioned to the crow. And it's a silly thing. It's it's an aspect of Crow's hubristic and arrogant character that he's done this. But the reason I was so keen to do it is because once you've read the book, even before the book, it could be Crow that's done that. (laughs) as a demonstration of his understanding of the anxiety of influence and, and the horror of influence and the fact that he is this character that can come and play with all this and do things that respectful literary people don't do, like mm-hmm. like put themselves in a poem and replace the most important word in a poem with their own name and stuff like that. But it's also quite a sensitive, it's quite a delicate act of vandalism. It's, an act, it's, a, it's, a, it's a critical homage, which is what the whole book's about, really. Mm-hmm. And then I also like the idea that it could have been Dad, mm-hmm. that he's done it as a kind of manic, visible sign of this crisis he's had and this obsession he's got but then i also think it could have been the boys in the book who've just many years later when they've managed to kind of process and understand and contextualize this very strange moment in their life they've done it as a kind of love letter as well you know so the theme of love letters and how we deal with the vertical inheritance of being a reader or being a child of of the texts we study and stuff is is what crow's here to muck around with Mm -hmm. you know that's his game that's what he's here to have fun with but dickinson uh you know there's never enough time in the, in life to read Dickinson enough. I think she's absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> so in a way, she's the permission giver. Mm-hmm. Hughes is the cameo, and I brought him in because there's so much baggage, and it's irresistible to me because we're so weird in this country about Hughes and his love life, and that. I couldn't resist that, and also because crows are so dripping with mm-hmm. symbolic goodies. They're like the the goodies just keep coming with crows. So I I, I knew it had to be crow. But then with the Dickinson is is me sort of saying. That's where all the, the grittiness is. That's where the tension Like If there's anything to hold on to, it's, it's the Dickinson mm-hmm. rather than the Hughes.
0: I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a podcast about ideas and culture.
1: I want to move on to talk about the three, the characters. Yeah. I was going to ask you to read some at the end, but I think perhaps it might be a good idea to, to do it before we, we actually go on to talk about the characters. So perhaps just give us a sort of brief synopsis <clears> of <what's, throat> what is going on in the book, and yeah. then we'll, you can read from it a bit.
2: Okay, well, there's the boys, and they're they're two young boys, but they slip in and out of chronology. So they are young when this happens to them. Their mother dies, and they're cared for by their dad. But they are also simultaneously adults remembering this time. They are manipulating their own narratives. They misremember and remember, and they swap stories, and they fiddle constantly with each other's narrative Capability. So, so one will tell a story. One will tell a slightly different version of that story. Dad is, as you said, a, a Ted Hughes scholar, and just to kind of, he's the kind of quiet, still middle point of the book. Really, he's the least flat. He's the person upon whom all this is acted, and he goes through this therapeutic process with the crow. And I suppose, really, Dad is. I mean, they're all me. But, you know, that is where I was able to put down some of my feelings about mm-hmm. mourning and parenting and, and, you know, my love of my children, my love of my wife and stuff. Because inevitably, I'd never written fiction before, so I didn't realise until I started fiddling around with real, true mm-hmm. feelings how fun it is to write fiction, how fun it is to make stuff up to try and get to something true, mm-hmm. you know, and that was, that was a revelation to me. And then, uh, and then, yeah, Crow is the third character. But I suppose, architecturally, Crow is the middle character. Crow is the kind of the weight. That, I mean, he has this obsession with triptychs in the book where he talks about himself as the stench of black, the thing in the middle, the needle in the arm in, in the middle of the book, which, is, again, is actually from thinking about Bacon. You know, he used to put the uh, hypodermic needle and the red arrow and stuff. And I read a thing somewhere where he's saying they have absolutely no... I mean, he's, he's playing with his own bullshit a lot, Francis Bacon, but he's saying they have no symbolic value. It's not a hypodermic needle. It's just something to pin the image to the thing. Yeah, so in a way that that's what my crow is, is doing. He's just pinning the, the, the two flanks of the, the panel next to him.
1: And then there's a there's a I'll obviously say a fourth character, elusive presence, which mm. is the mother. Mm. And the point of the book is that the the mother is gone. She's she's died and this is really the aftermath of that.
2: Yeah. She's only present as an absence and, and in a way they remember her. I did have a bit more of her in there. And it seemed to, uh, she had her own voice, there were these sort of bits where you would you would have her presence in the flat, the way she used the flat, and it didn't really, it kind of violated the terms of the book I found, it, mm. it made me very uneasy, and I realised that actually the whole point was, was her absence, And I, and I therefore put a bit more in of the boys, as it were, communicating with her, or attempting to to more self-consciously consider the ways you do or don't communicate with someone that's not there if you see what I mean so they did a bit more of that and then I wrote this sort of sham seance mm-hmm. where Crow towards the end of the book where he's settled down he's less analytical he's less dramatic, he's, he's closer to a kind of friend or, or, or like a, a good GP nice GP or something and he offers dad the opportunity to he says I could I could try and find her voice if you want I can go back and try and pluck some stuff out for her because i think i know where she is where she's sort of haunting you i can i can go there and so things like that were my way of just it's all it was more when i was writing it was more like volume really so if it was a piece of music i just felt that the mother had to be this kind of drone and that there were times when the busyness of the book and certainly the busyness of the crow character risked being too ornamental and possibly drowning out someone said to me yappy the other day like being too yappy and therefore, you're not getting this drone of the mother's absence throughout. So I just kind of made sure that it was throughout; it was constant. Um, but she's never named. And, uh, but I think you get—I hope you get a good sense of, of her character because they obsess about her.
1: Um, and you well, we don't really know what's happened. I mean, it's sort of vaguely—Crow sort of tells you at the yeah, end, but sort of not vaguely alluded yeah, to. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, that's the—that's the final bit. And I and I felt quite strongly about this because Crow is all is rolling these different identities around his palette, and he's he's playing at being Hughes's Crow. Then he's playing at yeah. being very naive. Then he's playing at being very rocky. Then he's playing at being very silly. And then he plays at being a, a sort of psychoanalytical mm-hmm. European intellect. And he, and the, this is all relentless dicking around. If you know you know, mm-hmm. which, which is one of the reasons he has nothing to do with Ted Hughes's Crow, who doesn't do much dicking around really. But um, I felt very strongly that it needed to pack it. A truthful punch towards the end of the book and that needed to be crow's job and he needed to to leave in a way that was a was a gift and was was an act of recognition to the receptiveness of the family to his his work as Mm -hmm. it were and so i decided to give him one poem at the end which is the first time so kind of it's not a poem you know free verse but it's the only time in the book where he speaks in his own voice and he sort of says what's happened to Mm -hmm. her then
1: Listen to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Max Porter. We're talking about his book, Grief is the Thing with Feathers. And Max, you're going to read something from it.
2: Dad, they played at birds, they played at lions. They went through phases, dinosaurs, trucks, thundercats, kung fu, lying, sport. There was very little division between their imaginary and real worlds. And people talked of coping mechanisms and normal childhood and time. Many people said, you need time. When what we needed was washing powder, knit shampoo, football stickers, batteries, bows, arrows, bows, arrows. There was very little division between my imaginary and real worlds. When people talked of sensible workloads and recovery periods and healthy obsessions, many people said, you need time. When what I needed was Shakespeare, Ibn Arabi, Shostakovich, Howlin' Wolf. I remember they left their tea unfinished and I picked up half-eaten fish fingers, cold peas and coagulated ketchup. I remember I said, I'm throwing every single toy in the bin, and they giggled. I remember being scared that something must surely go wrong if we were this happy, her and me, in the early days when our love was settling into the shape of our lives, like cake mixture reaching the corners of the tin as it swells and bakes. I remember my first date, aged 15, with a girl called Hilary Gidding coin fell down the back of the cinema seats and we both slipped our hands into the tight fuzzy gap of the chairs past popcorn kernels and sticky ticket stubs and our hands met stroking the carpet feeling for the coin and it was electric the wrist being clamped by upholstery the darkness the accident the lovely dirt of public spaces boys dad told us stories and the stories changed when dad changed i remember a story about a rat catcher The rat-catcher nailed the tails of dead rats to the headboard of his bed. One, two, three, four, five. The rat-catcher killed the king of the rats, and everyone knows a king rat can't be killed unless you boil its heart. As the rat-catcher slept, the rat-king's tail unpinned itself from the headboard and went along the line, plaiting the tails of his dead fellows to make a noose, and they throttled the rat-catcher. A rat-catcher rat, said Dad. What do you make of that? Dad told us stories, and the stories changed when Dad changed. I remember a story about a Japanese writer who fell on his sword, and it was so sharp it cut through blood and came out clean from his back. I remember a story about an Irish warrior who killed his son by mistake, but when he realised, he didn't mind that much, because it served the son right. Crow. Crickle, crackle, hop, sniff and tackle, in with the bins, singing the hymns. I lost a wife once, and once is as many times as a crow can lose a wife. Ooh, stab it! Just remembered something. He flew a genuflection tintagel carlisle cross morecambe orford wonky trying to poison himself with forbidden berries and pretty churches but england's litter saved him. Ley lines flung him cross-country with no time for grief, power cables catapulted loose bouquets of tar-black bone and feather, and other crows rained down from the sky a dead crow's storm, a tore top burnt birdbath, but our crow picked and nibbled at lilt cans and salted jurex and B&H, and the firestorm passed over his head as written history over the worker blackberry, redcurrant, loganberry, sloe, damson, plum pear, crabapple, bruises, clots, phlegm, tumours, and quince. He looks in a puddle of oil and sees his beak is brightly coloured, striped red, green, purple, and orange, like a puffin. He opens his mouth to scream and beautiful English melody comes out, garden song, like a blackbird or ivory-blooming gurney. This is another one of Crow's bad dreams.
1: Thank you for that. That's marvellous. Pleasure. So let's. <laughs> we'll go through the. I said, so there are three characters, but you started off there with boys. Yeah. So you've made this decision to. There's two boys. Mm. He has two sons, mm. Dad. And you've included them in the one voice, mm. basically. So let's talk about that decision.
2: That was where I started, actually. It was the first thing I wanted to try and do, was write a character that is the sibling relationship. Mm-hmm. And that has just been a very long preoccupation of mine, because I've got a brother. And we've been close you know we are close and um, we realized as we were growing up that we were sometimes swapping our stories and and um, for various different social or emotional reasons we would tell a story and the other one would say that that is not what happened you know I I remember being pushed into a huge bush of nettles and my brother remembers me pushing him into a huge bush of nettles and we'll never find out the truth but that's not that's irrelevant the point is that that is what siblings do do and are mm-hmm. capable of doing and many good and generative things occur when you when you have a life like that where you're kind of engaged in this constant warfare of emotions you know which is love you know
1: mm-hmm.
2: but also i uh, there was a point behind it for me which is that i think that the childhood work the world of childhood and, and particularly the role of storytelling in that world is is underestimated by adults for its darkness and its and its complexities mm-hmm. but also its directness And that's why I love Russian fairy tales, which I give a big shout out to throughout the book, Mm. because of that directness of of trauma in the world of child. You know, all fairy tales do it. That's the point. That's why they've had such longevity in terms of their moralistic or symbolic function or whatever. But I I really, you know, the Larkin thing about your your mum and dad fuck you up. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's true, (laughs) you know, but... Not as much as your siblings do. And sure. by siblings, I'm also including colleagues and schoolmates and <clears throat> friends. You know, the, the lateral relationship, I think, is, is the hot one. It's where all the disturbance occurs. And I don't mean to lessen the potential disturbance of, you know, bad enough mothers or good enough mothers or whatever. But I wanted to get in right in there, right in that space. And again, that's what Crow is giving permission for. He is saying, a space is opened up in your family. Fill it with glorious stories and Mm -hmm. grotesque you know games and all these sorts of things he suggests they do and being children they don't blink they accept that they go for it Mm. and
1: then you just gave us one of the the stories that they've got from dad which is about the rat catcher and there's well there's another example that i wanted to talk about which is well an example of where the the two boys give slightly conflicting versions of an event but also it's one of those things of, of children just being like Terrible. It's the, uh, <laughs> yeah, they are terrible. The, um, <laughs> the guppy. Mm. Tell
2: us that story. <laughs> I'm really sorry to tell you that that's true. Um, <laughs> and I'm really pleased it's true because it was a massive, formative thing for us. We were on a beach and um, it's one of the only things I have put in the book more or less unchanged from how it happened in mm. my life. We were on a beach and there was a large rock pool and there was a guppy fish in it. I don't even know if it was a guppy fish. I think it was a guppy fish. It was you know i'm showing neil a, a four or five inch fish <laughs> and it was swimming around and we said let's try and kill it so we we threw stones at it and we couldn't get it so we dammed it in and in and in and in until it was in a space almost its own size and then mm. we chose a rock exactly that size and plopped it down and killed it and we both immediately felt what i imagine is is like an observed anthropological thing like we deep sickness and revulsion and mm-hmm. self-disgust at this at the fact not, not so much at the dead fish which which was a bit gross when we chucked it in the sea but at our own at the fact we recognised we were top of the food chain and yeah. we, we'd done it with our minds and we'd done it like we'd engineered a death like we I guess we didn't it's that moment of primal innocence isn't it like where you just I mean I see it with my kids they stamp on ants and things and why did you stamp on it and they're like I don't know that's what humans do isn't it you know that kind of natural thing that we kill but also I suppose we were old enough to know a bit maybe we knew about world wars or you know Mm. I, I wonder at what age you become aware of something like you know industrial killing and things like that I think we recognised that that we what we'd done was symptomatic of of a life choice that we could become people that could harness our intelligence to kill things, and it was mm-hmm. it was truly memorable. And of course, you know, I, years later, I said to my brother, "Do you remember drowning that guppy fish?" And he's like, "Don't, I can't, can't go there, I can't talk about it." And and we are not someone. I I don't think I've ever deliberately killed another thing. I mean, I've you know swatted a, a wasp or something, and I I think I shot a bow and arrow once. At a rabbit and mist but really i think it was a very very important moment in our life we realized we didn't want we weren't turned on by it we Mm -hmm. were the other type of person you know and i've spoken to people who remember i know a bloke that shoots things he goes pheasant shooting Mm -hmm. and shit like that awful thing to do but he, he remembers a similar thing as a child his dad was like you know lining him up through the sights of a rifle to shoot a deer or whatever it was and he got it and he felt this rush of power and joy and clarity. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I had the, I had the opposite. <laughs> you know, maybe there's something kind of pathetic about the guppy. Anyway, so one brother tells that story and another brother tells it through the lens of, oh, my brother does these little scrappy drawings of the killing of the guppy fish, and he, mm-hmm. which, which is weird because he's quite good at drawing and he chooses to do scrappy drawings. So all the time I'm just trying to take the, the act of misremembrance or misinterpretation and just spin it into something larger which is how are we how are we aging how are we moving forward you mm-hmm. know, through this uh, and of course crow would recognize that going on and just be rubbing his hands thinking this is this is exactly what i came here to do this is yeah. this is what's going to help them out
1: i'm david stubbs and you're listening to little atoms a podcast about ideas and culture well, it's sort of a very awkward segue. I was almost going to say that, you know, another animal that you could almost imagine being clever enough to do that damning <coughs> in thing and calculatedly yeah. doing something is the Corvid. Is, yes. is, is the crow. So let's move us on to... Probably uh, the only animal. Yeah. I think that's a great
2: link. They are <laughs> phenomenally clever.
1: Phenomenally clever, mm. indeed, yeah. Absolutely amazing. And one day they're probably going to take over, so we all should be nice to crows and say hello to them as we are, uh, I hope so. They wouldn't, they,
2: they wouldn't feel the need to digitally Photoshop poppies on each other, would they? They'd be an altogether finer species to be in charge.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We've already sort of said at the top that this is not strictly... Ted Hughes's Crow, and in fact, he's a lot lighter, a lot funnier. I should say, actually, another way into this: it's a book that's about grief, that's a meditation on grief and coping with grief, but it's also really funny and often. So perhaps we should talk about that and then bring Crow in as well about how, yeah, how coping with grief can be can be awkwardly funny sometimes.
2: I, I hope so. I think life is sad and life is funny, and and it bothers me when experimental writers or indeed great writers or both have a sense of humour failure and so it, as if being a great writer or a great artist or a great thinker or anything allows you to be a prick as well mm-hmm. and I don't think it does in the same way as I don't think, it's not quite the same correlation but in the same way as I don't think being experimental with your art means you can't be funny or means you can't be tender or sentimental or, or ironic, You know, any. I don't think you, one needs to equate to a loss of the other. So it was very important to me that he's... I just wrote a thing for someone yesterday to explain this, and I was saying he, he takes himself a blood some or two less seriously than his namesake. And and I think it's important, it, you know, because he knows that. He sees that that's how he's been used. He finds it relatively entertaining, but he's just not. he's just not into it. And I think that's partly a thing about hindsight, that it's thirty years since since crow he he would quite naturally i think and it's partly bound up in my feelings about the kind of farce of the, of the post nuclear world that like if you if you're someone that is dressed up in a suit kneeling down to place your ceramic poppy i'm very angry about this at the moment you know kneeling down to place your poppy in the field to show that you you honor the dead and then ten minutes later you're hosting a dinner for the arms trade round the corner, you are a nasty hypocritical. But it's the lack of, you know, Crow is there to, to point that out. And I think that that's the joy of him having 30 years, is he can look at what Hughes did tenderly. I mean, he has a great deal of affection, as I do, for Hughes, but it's not, it's not, he it doesn't he He thinks it's all a bit 70s and all a bit po faced and all a bit serious and all a bit, you know, all a bit kind of um, out of the library, you know. It's, it's a bit male. He, he's, he's, in a way, he's a kind of metrosexual. Crow. He's he's come in to kind of say, men, stop taking yourself so seriously, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, we we need to, I don't think we've probably established enough, I mean, we have to agree that Hughes, he was a massive prick. He was a nasty prick, yeah.
2: And I don't care who he was shacking, I mean, this new biography I don't want to read who he was bonking Um, I'd rather go back to the poems but you've got to recognise that he was that way. But, you know, Crow knows that and he's here to try and help this bloke be a good bloke Uh, and and he's also he's the kind of, what I like about the, the yappiness the, the, the deliberate yappiness micro my and the sense of humour is that it, it comes from that, again from childhood, but you know, when I said this the other day, I said you're shagging your cousin, but that's a very unhelpful thing. What I meant was, you know, when you're at a funeral, as a child and you're very hyper aware Mm -hmm. of the the ceremonial thing that you're bound up we are all here to grieve for this person if you're close to that person you feel like you're some kind of star role and that other people might be watching how you grieve and thinking whether it's appropriate or not and it's very self conscious and actually totally distracting from the thing you're supposed to be doing which is being sad or missing this person or Mm or even beginning to think about their absence or whatever. But I also want it acknowledged, and this is what Crow is is coming to say, that that isn't how the brain works, especially in a time of emotional turmoil. I remember sitting at one of my grandparents' funerals and just having this unbelievably unhelpful and in retrospect beautifully helpful fear that I was going to get an erection like just like basically this like tide wall of sexual energy just flooded me the second I got in the church I was about 13 and I just sat there the whole time thinking I'm, I'm going to have a boner I'm, and then I'm going to stand up and people are going to point at me and they're going to say he's a sex crazed teenage pervert you know and the disrespect his grandmother and the whole funeral passed for these bloody thoughts and then you know I, I'm, I'm thrilled about that and I, you know my granny would have loved that she would have found that funny and, and so much more appropriate somehow, more honest than the kind of performative thing. You know, I, I can't bear people that, that perform states of emotion like that, grief or love, or visibly using social media or whatever they do. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's a sham. And so he's equally unforgiving of the sham of Hughes, but still likes the thing, you know, as he is of, you know, of the guy that comes in and tries to steal the children. You know, he, he's... I don't know quite what I'm trying to say. Like, he, he's... Um, I just wanted him to have it all. I wanted him to be pure play, and 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 so he, he.
1: Well, can... the, the trick is, I want to bring in the, I want to get away from Hughes basically okay, because he's great. a prick, and talk about the other aspects of the crow. Yeah. So the crow, in you know, in myth, in popular culture, in in religious culture, the trickster. Um, you bring in as you've already mentioned elements of Russian fairy tale, but yeah. there's you know as I said the trickster and sort of Native American aspect of, use yeah, of, yeah, of yeah. the crow and stuff. All these sort of things are bought into yeah. his character.
2: Yeah, he, he's totally um, it's it's infidelity. Like he he he's as light on his feet as as he possibly can be, and he's not trapped with any of them. So yeah, I got very into the bird. Mm-hmm. Watched a lot of crows it was in fact a sign I wasn't going to have the crow and I was umming and ahhing about basically writing a completely different book about waiting and um, it was going to be Telemachus and then I was in my garden having a drink and a fag and and this and I don't really get crows in my garden and a, and a really big crow like so big I was like could it, could it be another t- I mean could it be something else and it was like, a, like someone had just thrown an umbrella on me it went <laughs> right in front of my face and I, and like I was the like punch. right it's in it's in yeah like
1: the punch on the train
2: Exactly that sort of thing. So he's he's the bird, and, and he's so clever and witty about how how innovative he's been with his tools and all that. And he's also I didn't put it in in the end, but I like the idea that he, he's, you know, when you go to Glastonbury or somewhere, and there's all just miles of crow shit, like little little bangles and necklaces, and it's all a bit heavy metal, pagan, mm-hmm. you know, all that. He loves all that. It's fun. It's fun for him. All the death metal stuff, but also the the kind of um, also the therapeutic tradition that he's buying into as well you know he he, he's very acutely aware of the responsibilities of good babysitting and good and good therapy and so there's nothing there's nothing he does that isn't very carefully planned by him i love crows i think they're really special and one of the things i like most about them well like he says there in that bit i read they're, they're monogamous and um which I think is extraordinary, and, and, and they've been very, proven to be very clever with tools and stuff. They can do things not even chimps can do. But the nicest thing is the irony. They've been proven to be able to crack a joke. There's these great anecdotes about um, like a farmer. They shot into a tree, and one crow dropped down dead, and then waited till the farmer came over and then hopped off and I think that's absolutely fabulous and not because of the pathetic fallacy not because I want animals to be more like us but I think crows have a distinct swagger when they're being like us that shows they just find it all quite entertaining I'm Andrew Muller check out the growing Little Atoms media empire at littleatoms.com
1: I want to talk about the the style of of crow now you you have been said earlier as well very careful to say that you didn't read crow because you didn't want the style of Ted Hughes' crow to influence the writing of this book but one of the things about Crow was the way that sort of Hughes tried to sort of deconstruct language mm. and as well. And your Crow talk, well, he talks like a crow. He talks in a sort of stuttering, staccato, mm. violent mm. manner, which I think sort of can't help but refer back to, to, to Ted Hughes's Crow in that sort of way, I think. Oh, well, that's
2: interesting. I, I suppose not.
1: But then, you know, Hughes was obviously just trying to do a
2: crow. Yeah, but uh, Hughes' crow seems to me to stride around. He's less hoppy. He's less... um, He is more a totem pole crow, Mm. Hughes' crow. And he's got a Bible under one arm the whole time. He's so so textural. My crow is much more like I mean, people keep telling me that he reminds them of, you know, Christopher Walken or Russell Brand or um, who was it the other day that was quite accurate? Actually, I can't remember. But you know,
1: Christopher he, Walken's a good one. He's, yeah. he's
2: much more, you know, he, he's the kind of crow that would get up to do his poetry Dead reading. Is or yeah, <laughs> yeah. He is, uh, the, he'd, so Hughes's crow would stand up and do his reading, and it would be very black and powerful and mm-hmm. ugly and, and primitive. My crow would get up, and he'd probably have like a bit of his foreskin caught in his zip or something. You know, he's yeah. like, he's hopeless. I think that's that's important again because he's self-deprecating, but also acknowledges that the great. Mar- I don't, you know, there's no doubt. Crow is a masterpiece, but I what he's doing is respecting that what I'm doing, I suppose, but also accepting that po- the poet is dead. He's in the ground. He's had hundreds and hundreds of books written about him. If there's ever anyone we can hop around on the memory of and have some fun with, it's this. You know, yeah. there's no need to be. I don't think there's any need to be rever- reverential towards the memory of that, and also Hughes put a big old stamp on his crow but he's not, he's not a crow I necessarily recognise out in the world when I'm thinking about things whereas Hughes on Rivers I, I, I'd never write a book with a, <laughs> with a river in it because I, <laughs> cause that, that to me was an achievement quite unlike anything else and I wouldn't touch it, it, it it's, it's sacred ground but I don't feel that about Crow it was an invitation also because Hughes never finished Crow he never, he never, he never put a, uh, you know, he never wrapped it up neatly. There's, there's openings and it's all streaming out all over the place. And he kept revising it. And yeah. It and 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 he and it, it was never, it was, it was, it was so bound up with the economics of being a poet. So he'd start these little limited editions with other people, and then he'd do a bit of more with the Leonard Baskin, and then someone would ask him to do one crow poem for this and that. And if that itself isn't an invitation that that we can all write about crows, I mean, having said that, I'll never do this again. I'll never take on something with such spiky baggage.
1: I've said all along we keep trying to get away from Ted Hughes, and it's not really worked. It's not not really possible. He does, as I said, he's he's a sort of ghost that haunts the book.
2: Well, he is the obsession. You know that that's the thing. He's the dad's obsession come alive. And and I think the risk was if I choose something with that much baggage, is it going to outweigh everything else? Mm -hmm. And when we sit talking about the book, it possibly does. But I really hope when you're in the pages of the book the boy's voice and the boy's experience is loud enough and the mm-hmm. dad's experience is truthful enough to keep it all in, in, in tune, you know, as I say this, this this musical sense that it's all balanced about right but I can't be the judge of that
1: Let's just finish off talking about I mean, how is it, we've described it at the beginning of the show or I did as um, somewhat uncategorisable so how has it been received?
2: Really well Yeah, I got three bad reviews so far and they were very interesting. The first one was just horrible. I don't think she'd written many book reviews and she just said that she hated the fact she had to keep Googling things. So I thought that was it's a It's not a good
1: thing to share with a review.
2: It's not. And then it, it, it being Twitter, everyone just barreled in on her and so they said, oh, this is a disgrace to book review," and I felt really bad for her then. So I found I was wasting quite a lot of time. I, I'm someone that overthinks things terribly. So, you know, someone had said something to me, you know, and I got, got obsessed about that. Then there was Erica Wagner, which was interesting because she's written a book on Ted and Sylvia. And she read it. It was very tin She read it entirely through that lens. Mm-hmm. Hardly mentioned the boys. Just read, you know, basically said, you cannot, you cannot. Step in Ted Hughes's shoes, so she sort of said I wasn't going to Ted Hughes, which is kind of okay. You know, I mean, you know never said I was. <laughs> uh, and then there was another one that was by a self-professed Crow fan who just didn't again didn't really like the yappy, funny fart joke Crow. Mm-hmm. She was like, "Yeah, start, don't 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 muck around with Ted Hughes's Crow." So all oh, totally fair enough. And elsewhere, just people have loved it, and it's been so nice for me.
1: So there were good reviews as well. Oh, we probably should probably st- mention
2: that. There's been some stunners. <laughs> and what's really nice for me, because I work in literary publishing and it's hard to get people to read books, is people are really reading it. And it's reached a crowd of people that I never thought it, it would. I don't know how you reach them necessarily. Of the you know, people um, doing vlogs, YouTube book blogs and stuff, and they all start by saying, I don't know what to, to, how to describe this to you, mm-hmm. but I loved it. You know, so it's obviously reaching through to people. And people don't seem to mind the Hughes thing. Someone, uh, There's been a few really sweet blogs and reviews where people have said, I've never read Crow, not interested in Ted Hughes, but this is one of the, my favourite books this year. You know, a sense that, that it's been taken on its own terms. So it's made me very, ha- I'm absolutely humbled by the reception, yeah. And, and
1: does that make you sort of revise? I mean, if this sort of come across your desk at
2: work, Oh, I would have done it, yeah. You would. Oh God, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would have done it because um, I, I, one of the reasons I, I have to be honest, one of the reasons I wrote it is is because I'm I'm pretty underwhelmed by what we get. You know, I read about 150 books a year on my on my Kindle, mm-hmm. and there, it, there's some great writing out there. Not that much that's that's interesting. We get a lot of really good stuff from America, and this interesting know that generally, the fiction we're getting from Britain it is is a bit underwhelming. Mm-hmm. It's not very ambitious. It's not very true. It's not very adventurous formally. Not that things need to be to be good, but that's why it's nice to be on the goldsmith list with those writers that are are taking... You know, there's not that many. Mm -hmm. And actually, people gave that prize a bit of a bashing because it was all male shortlist, which is a problem. It's it's, it's an unfortunate thing, and I hope it's just a blip in that prize's history because it's been won by women both times before. But then everyone started to say, you know, well, what, the books, what other books would we want on it, mm-hmm. by men or women? And people weren't really thinking of that many. I mean, perhaps we're just not publishing that much interesting fiction. There are the great imprints, you know, Cape and, uh, you know, Harville Secker and Grant and all these publishers that do good stuff, but they're not that much British stuff. So mm-hmm. in a way, I just wrote it. to It's a portrait of my inner life, of my reading life, and the fact that I, I refuse to just read novels. I want to keep reading children's books. I want to read poetry on the loo. I want to read essay collections. I want to read big boring books about world wars. You know, I, I want it, I want it all, and that's the joy. And we should all be reading as widely and as freely as we want, and and making those out those those categorisations about readers, like women's fiction, or you know, book club books, or like, graphic novel readers. I, I'm a graphic novel reader, but I only only read six a year. Mm-hmm. You know, does that make me a does that make me useful to their buying patterns? I don't know. You know, so I just hoped it would be something that would just cut under all that and, and be a bit different and and fit in a pocket and not detain a reader too long. You know, life is as we said, happy <laughs> life. No, what do we say? Sad, funny, and also short. And I think small books can do a lot.
1: Yeah, it's definitely too short for multiple eight hundred page books. I have to... Yeah say that after reading a few of those this year. Yeah,
2: you only do one or two of them a year.
1: <laughs> well, let's yeah. hope for more polyphonic fables then in the coming year. So I've been talking to Max Porter we've been talking about Grief is the Thing with Feathers which is out now from Faber and Faber. So Max, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Cheers.
0: Rachel Cook and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: Before we finish this week uh, I've just been joined briefly by my erstwhile podcast colleague Padre Greedy who is now the editor of the swanky Little Atoms website which if you've been living under a stone for the past nine months you might not be familiar with so I'm going to ask Padre first of all to Give us a brief cap of the past year, Padre. Like, what's happened with the website?
3: Well, we um, we launched, uh, little, relaunched rather, Little uh, of course, littleatoms. existed. We relaunched LittleAtoms.com in uh, January, basically hoping to carry on the the theme, the broad themes of the of the podcast, culture, science, the overlap between the two, lots of literature, politics, uh, the things that we we've, we've found interesting in the podcast in the past ten years, and bring the, a different kind of format, so more text more video and so on uh, and really pushing for the idea and seeing really where that can take us
1: and what have been yeah. some of the successes over the past few months how has it gone
3: we've we've had some very interesting very very mixed um successes so uh, as i say the we continue the themes largely of of the of the podcast uh, some of the more notable successes have been and that have really spread around the web have been for example an examination of the the paranoid style in modern politics, uh, looking at um, particularly taking Nigel Farage in the UK and Donald Trump in the United States, uh, which was a really influential piece. Uh, we've also had successes with a piece about the um, anti-homeless spikes in London. Um, we've looked at quite a lot at what's happening in um, in politics in the UK at the moment with the rise of. Um, Jeremy Corbyn and the, the, within the Labour Party, and also then more literary pieces. We had a fascinating article by um, Katie Evans-Bush, the poet, which is about plagiarism within poetry, which is a very specific and niche problem, but a fascinating insight into a particular world.
1: And so now, the big news that we're talking about today is we've decided to go backwards <laughs> and publish a magazine. So, for the love of God, why?
3: Well... I think most people who have been involved with the Latins over the years, and most people who listen to the Latins, are obviously fans of the printed word. We're avid readers, every one of us, and there is still no, no, no better way to consume these ideas than, than through the printed page. No offense to the many podcasters out there. Um, so, so, we thought we would design something that reflected the past few years of what's been happening with the podcast, the variety of things on the podcast. Uh, So we have a combination in this new magazine uh, of some of what we thought were some of the best interviews from the past few years, which have been transcribed and edited and edited again and edited again into into very beautiful um, articles. We then have some, so we have, for example, we have an old interview that Neil and I did many years ago uh, with... um, Christopher Hitchens which has never been transcribed before for example we have articles about the influence of the Great Gatsby on American life and culture Uh, we have Lindsay Dario, the wonderful war photographer who also very kindly gave us some of her brilliant photographs to use in the magazine where they look absolutely stunning we also have some original non-podcast content of course Uh, we have um, Nick Cohen who's a a long-standing friend of the show writing about um, his love of terrible terrible airport books uh, we have Fergal Keane, the uh, renowned BBC correspondent, gave us a photo essay from his experience uh, covering the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean over the summer. So, again, it, it's, it's trying to get that broad range of interest uh, that Little Adams has always been engaged in and putting it out in a different format and, and really hoping to see how people react.
1: And we should mention another long-term Friend of the show, Jonathan Meads, who's also kindly let us publish something.
3: Of course, Jonathan's been on the show, I think, I believe more, more, more times. More time than times than anybody else. else. Nine. Yes. And again, you know, Jonathan, we all we're all very used to hearing Jonathan's voice and watching his wonderful documentaries and reading his brilliant books. But we have um, quite marvelously, we have some of his. Very artistic, very abstract photography and a wonderful essay accompanying that. So beautifully reproduced in this well, in this magazine with a little explanatory essay for what are essentially photographs that cannot be explained in a very meads way. And
1: um, So the obvious question is, how can one get hold of a copy of this magazine?
3: Well, it's the easiest thing to do is go directly to littleatoms.com uh, and you can order directly from there. Alternatively, you can ask at your local bookshops. Um, people in the UK can go to Waterstones. Um, but if you don't have a local Waterstones, just ask at your local bookshop and,
1: and they will deliver. The other way you can get hold of it is by joining the Friends of Little Atoms mm-hmm. Scheme on the website. So tell us what that is.
3: Yes, well, again, we, we were, look, we're looking at different ways that we can, we can engage with people who have been very loyal to Little Atoms over the years. And one of the things that we've built on this year particularly um, through Little Atoms has been, um, we had run one very large event in June, we saw hundreds of people turning up in London to our alternative Magna Carta festival, of which Little Atoms was a large part. Uh, and we would like to extend that idea next year. So not only by becoming a friend of Little Atoms, you will have to support the journalism on the website, you will have to support the podcast, and you will, ha- you will in return, you will come, you will be invited to our exclusive live events, which will take place... In London and throughout the country, um, you will get this very beautiful magazine, and there will be <coughs> all sorts of additional content and surprises over the coming twelve months for supporters. So you can you can become a supporter just by going to the website, and there's a button ever present where you, you can find.
1: Just finish off by giving us the website again.
3: So the website is www.littleatoms.com.
1: But you already knew that already, listeners. So, uh, <laughs> Podrick, thank you for taking the time to tell me about it.
2: Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
3: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
0: The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet.
2: You can follow the show on Twitter at LittleAtoms.
3: You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.